Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We go beyond the FM dial. Yes, you can hear us live at RadioNorthland.org and you can pick up that app from TuneIn, which features all three of our Pioneer 90.1 stations. But anyway, uh, that RadioNorthland.org, if you happen not to be able to catch us live and in the moment, you can go to the Wrestling Memories page on our website at RadioNorthland.org and listen to past episodes like this one, maybe in a couple of weeks or a couple of days or if you're listening to us live we do definitely thank you for listening glenn broggett along with my co-host partner in crime back from uh, assignment he was out looking for uh, some top talent for the program he always has his eye on the prize he's down there in his mobile studio deep in the heart of texas ladies and gentlemen welcome to 2019 the grizzled vet michael mccurdy hey glenn how you doing man i'm glad to be back in the uh the co-host seat back in the mobile studio and ready to start off 2019 first episode of 2019 for me actually as you said on assignment booking some great guests again Yes, yes. Uh, last week, of course, uh, George Shire joined me uh, for a tribute episode to Mean Gene Okerlund, which uh, was, was very well received and was very fun to uh, look back on the career of Mean Gene and uh, send him off uh, in a good, positive way, talking old AWA memories and even some of the stuff before he joined the AWA. You know, it was very sad to hear the passing of Mean Gene Okerlund. I had a chance to meet him at uh, CAC a few years back. and Such a great guy. He actually... You know, cut a couple promos for company I was working with at the time, and was very you know gracious to do it. Didn't have any issue with it, and to stand there and hold the camera and record the interview and realize, holy crap, I'm interviewing Mean Gene Okerlund. That for me was one of just those career highlights that you'll never forget. I mean, the tone, any of his age, still had that golden tone in his voice. Oh, for sure, one hundred percent. And uh, yeah, we. Uh... We definitely miss Gene, but you know what? We missed you too there, Mike, and I'm going to let you uh, take the wheel here because you booked uh, a dandy of a guest. I did a little research here before uh, the program today, and I'm looking, and I'm like, this is a very impressive gentleman. Mike, I'm going to let you handle the introduction of this rather impressive guest this week on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Well, I appreciate that, Glenn, and we do have a rather impressive guest. Um, Wrestled in Japan, wrestled in Mexico, one of the founders of Ultimate Pro Wrestling University, which if anybody knows their wrestling history, that's where you guys such WWE superstars as John Cena. Frankie Kazarian came from UPW. Victoria was in UPW. Chris Masters, the list goes on. I had the chance just a few days ago to sit and listen to this man for a seminar here at Dallas Championship Wrestling, teaching some of the young up-and-coming indie stars that you're going to see later on. Such an amazing story this guy has, and I'm proud to have him as a guest tonight today to talk about his career, what he's doing now, and some of the other things he's accomplished in this time. Our guest on Wrestling Memories in now this week is none other than Mr. Tom Howard. Tom, welcome to Wrestling Memories. Thank you very much, sir. So, Tom, we like, you know, our interviews here, we always kind of start off with the same thing, because we like to talk about our everyone's wrestling memories, what they remember growing up. So, what I'd like to start off with is, what was your earliest memory? What got you hooked, interested in the, the world of wrestling. Yeah, so I grew up not able to watch wrestling because I was raised as a Mormon, and uh, I was highly encouraged not to watch it. So, of course, anytime your parents want you not to do something, it's something you always want to do, so I kind of had to sneak. Uh, and my earliest memories were probably of 
I would say, uh, I'd say like the Sheik, the, the early Sheik, uh, Baron Von Raschke, um, that era. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old now, so, so I started, you know, pretty early. And then from there, so, um, it, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, from there, you know, it, it evolved to the point where by the time I was, you know, out on my own, I was able to watch wrestling and I uh, got into uh, bodybuilding and always, you know, fantasized about being a wrestler, but never had any idea how to get into the business. And a lot of people started approaching me, asking me if I was a, a wrestler. So it kind of was a natural fit at one point. So you said, you know, you grew up Mormon. You had to sneak watching wrestling, you know, as a child. How were you able to do that and not get, you know, and not be found out? Yeah, it was just the times when wrestling was on, if it was on late at night, if, you know, you'd run into a late night program or uh, if your parents weren't, weren't around, it wasn't, it wasn't horribly strict, but it was definitely uh, very much not encouraged. Let's just say that. So at what, at what age were you, how old were you when you first decided you wanted to try to be a wrestler? You said you're almost 50 now. Um, how old were you when you first decided this is what you wanted to try to do? Yeah, probably around, probably around 20. 20 years old. Uh, it was, like I said, I was bodybuilding and doing martial arts and I had grew up doing freestyle Greco Roman wrestling competed, uh, at, at all that decent level there to the point where, you know, when, when you add all those things together, pro wrestling is a pretty good fit. And, you know, it's something that it seems so strange that you could ever even figure out how to get into it. This was pre internet days. So you couldn't just look up a school. Yeah. Who first approached you about, possibly becoming a wrestler? Uh, well, actually, strange story. Uh, there's a guy named Al Burke, and uh, he, he wrestled as Mr. Outrageous. Uh, he uh, met myself and my future tag team partner named Hank Hill, who was a massive powerlifter. And uh, he told us that uh, there was a school that was about an hour away from our houses in San Bernardino, California. And uh, he told us he'd make the, the introduction. So he brought us into the school, and after we got in the ring the first time, I was completely hooked. Now, interesting connection there. You mentioned Mr. Outrageous, Albert. Um, at the time of this recording, today's the uh, January 10th. Um, this is my one-year anniversary. This is one year to the day that I first joined Wrestling Memories and Now. And our guest, my first interview, was Mr. Outrageous, Albert. I've known Al since about 2000. <laughs> 2006, when I first officially kind of met him, saw him at an indie show a few years before that, too. We had some great stories about that one. So definitely got a connection with Al Burke. Now, yeah. School of Hard Knock, I'm assuming that's where you went to in San Bernardino. That's Jesse Hernandez, and I believe that would have been Bill Anderson at the time? Correct. Now, how was it like training with uh, Jesse Hernandez and Bill Anderson? I know both of them. I've known them at least over about 10 or 15 years now. Great guys, also great trainers as well. What was it like working with uh, them? Uh, it was it was very good, very good. Uh, they uh, they taught a combination of styles because Jesse did more of a lucha style. Bill had spent a bit of time wrestling in Japan, and then of course they just did the basic American style. So they they did a good job of teaching us a combination. They also had connections with Mexico, Japan, and of course U.S. So it really helped out from the very beginning, learning the styles, and then being able to get booked into these different areas and that. Everything took off from there. Now, who were some of the other guys that you trained with at the time? Any any names that we might know? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's. Uh, let me think. 
Bobby Bradley was one of the guys who helped me out. Uh, Christopher Daniels uh, started off real early with me there. Uh, let me think. Louis Ficoli, if you remember him, he passed away, but he was one of the guys there. Um, and that's, those are some of the main guys I can think off the top of my head. Who were some of the other trainees in your class? Th- those were those were the ones I just mentioned. Yeah, those were the. Oh, those are the ones. Those okay, the ones. okay. Yeah, I yeah. understand. All right. Now, um, question here. We know Bill Anderson. Obviously, we know him. He also helped train Ultimate Warrior. Staying on. Bill is obviously a fountain of knowledge and all that, and has, like you said, his wrestle teaching. Did you get a chance to wrestle with, uh, you know, work out with Bill, or was it just kind of like as a in a training uh, aspect? Um. Yeah, you know, he got in the ring from time to time. Uh, Jesse was uh, more of the guy that uh, probably spent more of the time in the ring. And, uh, you know, the main, the main teaching technique there was you had quite a few guys that were more advanced, and so they would kind of tell us what to do, and then they would advise on how to do it. Uh, not so much uh, hands-on uh, teaching as much as coaching, I would say. Now, you, you watched us growing up as much as you could. You were about 20 when you first started training. Your first step in the ring, your first starting training, what are some of your memories of just, you know, taking that first bump, taking that first fall, just, you know, the beginning of training? What were some of your memories of that? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, you know, at first the adrenaline kicks in, you don't feel anything. Uh, but when you, I'm sure you heard this a million times, the, the next day, you know, something like ropes hitting you in, in the uh, lat. You never have that happen in real life. And a bump you never take in real life unless you fall. So your body's not used to it in any way, shape, or form. And it, it's it's that wow factor. I, I enjoyed it. I, I didn't find it to be painful. I just found it to be, I found myself real sore and real stiff. Uh, but I, I, you get through that right away to the point where I, still to this day, I could probably go out and do a match and, and feel pretty good about it and not, not be too stiff. It's like my body's pretty much been conditioned for since I really got into it. Now, once you started training, I kind of got the, the use of it, kind of got the feel of what it was like inside the ring. When was it that you realized, you know, this is what you wanted to do? You wanted to be a professional wrestler? Uh, well, I had a, I had a nine to five uh, suit and tie job, uh, and I would do training at nighttime. I would uh, literally drive an hour home from my job and then t- turn around and drive an hour back to the wrestling gym. So, and then train for three, four hours and then drive home and then do it all again. So it, it, was, a, it was a tough grind initially. Um, I had a pretty good response right off the bat going to Las Vegas, working in a promotion there that was on television called NWC. Um, got over with the fans pretty, pretty well. And so once I got, once I got a taste of the acceptance and, and the fact that, you know, it looked like it was something, you know, you, like I chose wrestling, but I was waiting to know whether wrestling had, had chosen, had chosen me or not. And once I got a taste of success, that's probably when I, uh, believed that it was something I could, uh, continue with. So how long were you training before your, your first match? Uh, realistically about a year. A year, I'd say I trained there for a total of about two years. And then, uh, like I said, about a year in, we did a small match. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't too far after that when I got to team with Junkyard Dog and I got to uh, battle Tito Santana for the championship belt in Las Vegas. A lot of real interesting things. Wrestled with Neil Moskers, uh over and over, <laughs> probably did about 20 matches with him. So I was one of the only guys that he trusted because of uh, – uh, uh, getting the nod from Jesse Hernandez. So a lot of interesting stuff along the way. 
who was your what was your debut match? Who was your first opponent? What do you remember about that debut? Yeah, it was uh, Bobby Bradley, and it would have been in the I want to say in the Silver Nugget in Las Vegas. It's a casino, um, and I think I did wrestle as KGB at the time, which they had me as a Russian character. Um, I they 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 had back then. I just really just did spots. I never really learned psychology until way later i'm talking like 10 years later so i really just did not comprehend it because i didn't have uh the background watching wrestling from a little kid i didn't understand it the way a lot of people do as far as the innate knowledge of psychology so it took me a long time to to figure that out do you think not having some of that knowledge of wrestling from watching as a child do you feel that might have been like a handicap for you at the time Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I go back and watch my dark matches at WWE and I just say to myself, how in the world did they, did they even, you know, keep me around for, for a couple of years on development? It didn't make sense in retrospect because there's zero psychology. It, it wasn't until after I, I even, uh, really until I got to, to, I dare say, started to really teach a lot of the wrestlers. And then when I got to Japan, I really learned psychology from being in the ring with some of the, the big legends. Now, speaking of legends, you know, you had your debut against Bobby Bradley. You said you wrestled Silver Nugget yeah, in Las Vegas on it. But your list of the guys you had a chance to work with after that, you know, you mentioned Junkyard Dog, you mentioned Mil Mascaris, you know, Tito Santana. Legends in their own right. I mean, Mil Mascaris, obviously a true legend. What was it like getting a chance to work with, you know, guys like this? You know, not in their prime, of course, but still getting a chance to work with these guys, such legends at, you know, such a beginning of your career. Uh, it was it was great. Uh, so you know the way the way it tended to work is because these guys, as you said, they were near the end of their career, and I was the kind of the new the, the new young guy that was getting a push. Um, they they would either have me team with them uh, for events, or you know I'd get like I say for example in a tournament when I when I uh, wrestled uh, Tito, uh, and basically you know I was. I was uh, taught well enough to know that you just go in there and listen. Um, and obviously, you let the ring general run the business, even if you're the heel, which, I, of course, I was. I certainly wouldn't go in and tell any of these guys what to do. Now, you went out, you, you know, looking at your career, you went into Mexico, you wrestled as a KGB. That was kind of the first gimmick you started with, I believe, correct? Correct, yes. Now, what was the kind of the origin of KGB? And you know who who came up with it, and how far did you go with it? Uh, well, so it was it, back when I was younger. Uh, everyone always said I looked like uh, Ivan Drago from the uh, the Rocky movies, uh, and so that that was kind of a, a natural to. And of course, back in the early days, there was always they were always looking for a Russian. And uh, I, you know, way back where in my family history, somewhere we do have some Russian in this, but definitely not enough to claim to be Russian. But just off the appearance, um, decided to do the KGB thing. We needed to come up with a name, a Russian name, um, and I like the idea of just using initials because it's something that as soon as you see it once, it sticks in your brain and you, you remember it. Um, I, Jesse Hernandez was setting up the ring for a AAA Lucha Libre uh, when they did a show in L.A. Uh, I went with him to help him set up the ring. Uh, I had a packet made of all of my... Uh, press clippings and pictures and things of that nature. And Antonio Pena, who was the owner of AAA, uh, came early to the show. And uh, Jesse told me, you know, told him something in Spanish and had, had me jump in the ring and, and do a little tryout match for him. 
uh, gave him a packet and then didn't hear anything uh, and just forgot about it. And then about a month later, I got a call from uh, Conan, uh, who was the booker for AAA, and he said that uh, he would like me to uh, come down to Mexico for, for a big show uh, that weekend. So you're talking like the phone call, I'll get it on Monday, and they want me there Friday. Uh, so once again, I have a full-time job, and <laughs> I, I asked him how long I should, you know, I should take off. And he says, uh, if you get over with the fans, you can stay as long as you like. And if you don't get over, we'll have you back by, by Monday. So it literally started in that fashion. Uh, went over. Uh, they had a mask made for me. This is kind of interesting. It was supposed to have a hammer and sickle, and I was supposed to wear this mask. And then they were, were going to have me eventually lose, lose the mask. And then it would, it would be revealed that I was actually a Russian, which is, would be a strange thing. Um, but the guy who made the mask made the hammer and sickle all backwards. And so as soon as they handed it to me, I showed the promoter and the owner and, and, uh, and I showed him, I said, look at this. And he, he just like hit the guy in the head and said, ah, no, forget that. Don't just go out without the mask. So came out with the big Russian flag. They had two, uh, Spanish Mexican girls that had bleached their hair blonde and they were all done up in their, uh, hammer and sickle outfits. And they walked side by side with me as I walked in out to the audience. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Can you describe that audience down in Mexico City when you worked down there? I mean, what was the atmosphere like uh, from from moving on and, and going down to a whole different animal, which was AAA at that time in '95, '96? Yeah, it was it was pretty sketchy um, at first. It, I had I had some interesting experiences being that I'm six foot four, tall blonde guy. Uh, when I walked through the streets of Mexico City, you know, you, you right away stand out, but when I did my first match and it was televised within an hour of it running on TV, all of a sudden it completely changed because everyone watches wrestling there. And all of a sudden taxi drivers are driving by doing the whistle, the Mexican whistle, (laughs) the bad whistle. Um, People are, are, you know, coming up, screaming at me, yelling at me, asking for pictures, but they're also, you know, playing, playing the character. And my life changed pretty quickly. It was pretty pretty interesting. Now, with with uh, you know with Mexico at the time, uh, Conan was a very very big star. What, what was it like to work with with Conan and, and to see how he interacted with the audience? Because that that was a time uh, around that mid nineties where where Conan was pretty much uh, one of the top dogs in, in AAA as far as in ring. Oh yeah, yeah. Conan was huge, huge star, and uh, we became good friends to the point where I would hang out over his house. Uh, you know, in between matches, and, and we all travel together. Um, so it was interesting to see. I've been around some pretty big stars, and he's probably, as far as the way people receive him, it was was at that point the biggest star I've been around, as in he'd walk into a coffee shop or anywhere, and the entire, everyone would freak out, and people would be jumping over the counter and running over. He couldn't, you know, it was, it was, it was really crazy. And you also had uh, opportunity to work with other uh, Mexican legends as well, uh, you know, Perro Aguayo, L.A. La Parca. Talk about uh, some of the guys that you did have a chance to uh, to work with in ring uh, while you were down there, uh, you know, getting your wrestling education. Yeah, uh, so an interesting story. When I first got there, there was a young kid who spoke really good English, and he was helping me to translate with the office. And... Uh, and I asked him, I said, boy, how, how'd you learn to speak such good English? He says, well, I'm from San Diego. And I, I assumed he was about 13, 14. Uh, and so I said, oh, okay. And he says, oh, you know, I'm a wrestler. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, my uncle's, uh, uh, his name is uh, Ray Mysterio. Uh, and he, he has a school here in Tijuana. 
And so he was just getting ready to get started. It was him, Juventud Guerrero. Uh, let's see. Dionicio, uh, what is his name? His name is, uh, we got the horns, Psychosis. Uh, anyway, those guys were like the young, the young crew, awesome guys. Um, got along with them real well. Uh, let's see, La Parca. He was a pretty scrappy guy. Had a lot of matches with him. I mean, in Mexico, it's so crazy because I don't, I don't think I ever had a singles match. I don't think that it was always some random three on three, four on four. Uh, the gimmick I had when I was there, it was called Mexico contra el mundo, which means Mexico versus the world. And they'd had me team with Samu Fatu, who's Rikishi's brother, one of the head shrinkers. Um, he was doing a like a, a, a Rikishi type gimmick over there, where he was playing like a sumo wrestler. And then they had a, a Mexican guy in a mask playing an American, <laughs> and they, they called him a killer with Andy Barrow, the Mexican with bleach blonde hair. So it was really funny. They had a fake Russian, they had a Samoan playing a sumo wrestler, and they had a Mexican playing an American. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to be the craziest thing, you know. And that's what, what the fun fun is when you when you, you check it out. I mean, you got to experience it. Uh, you know, Some of us got to read it in the sheets uh, about just what they've done down there with the trios, and you could end up uh, mixed up with a mini every once in a while. It was just, uh, you know, it was their way of, of selling their product of Lucha Libre. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting. You had you, you had the fans reaction. I mean, two of the things that they did that uh, that I, I'm embarrassed to admit, but one of the things is every once in a while you get you get a warm cup of beer poured on you and you can figure out how beer becomes warm by passing through the human body. Mm-hmm. And then uh and then the other one they do is the flaming peso and I guess that's where they like hold the peso with, with something and and then light it up with their lighter. And then as you're walking past them on the way to or from the ring, they'll flick it at you. And it literally like sticks to your body. And you end up with a Mexican president tattoo for a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, just part uh, part of the uh, hazards of the job, I guess. Uh, I have to ask you, yeah. uh, around 1996, uh, and I remember uh, reading about this in the magazines, uh, you had an opportunity to come back and, and, and compete in the World Wrestling Peace Festival, Antonio Inoki's World Wrestling Peace Festival, the first one that was held in North Korea. But no, you were in the one that was in the stateside version in Los Angeles. Could you talk about how you got involved with that, uh, who you worked with, and, and just the overall experience of, of being part of some, uh, just a, a, a good combination of wrestlers from, from around the world and not only just here in the United States? Absolutely. Yeah, so um, I, I, had, uh, I had been down to Mexico for a year, maybe going on two years, and I was getting real burnt out, really, really burnt out. I having trouble getting paid. Like, like that was a pretty common story. I'm sure you've heard from many people who wrestle in Mexico. And uh, so they fly us back to L.A. for one of their big shows at the L.A. arena. Um, and uh, while I'm there, I meet a guy who – a Jap- Japanese guy who walks up, and you got to figure most of the people there from, from AAA don't speak uh, good, very good English. And so this guy comes up to me and says, "Oh, you know, um, I'm I'm, in tra- I'm representing Antonio Noki, and we're having this thing called the World Wrestling Peace Festival, and he would like to see if AAA would like to be involved." So I, at that point, I by that point I spoke, you know, not great Spanish, but decent Spanish. So I helped him communicate and uh and then of course they they have put me on the show uh representing uh triple a and i wrestled i want to say craig Pittman 
Yeah, Craig Pittman. Um, it, was, it was interesting because they had a couple of guys uh, that were they wanted to get involved as well, like uh, that are kind of halfway uh, got involved or helped hook up. Chris Jericho was one. There was uh, let's see, a couple of the guys from um, Guerrero, I think, was there. Who else? Anyway, a real interesting group of people. Um, the show itself uh, was a bit of a, uh, a flop because of the numbers. They, they booked it in a huge arena. I don't, I don't think it actually drew drew well. But as far as it was an interesting situation because it helped a lot of guys that you saw come up in WCW. That's where a lot of them met Eric Bischoff because of WCW's involvement. So that's what switched over to guys like uh, Benoit and uh, and Jericho to get to get into WCW. Speak before I got hand the mic back to to, to Mike. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the time you got had a chance to train uh, in Sambo with uh, Gene LaBelle. Could you talk about that? Because the name Gene LaBelle comes up a, a lot in, when we talked about the history of pro wrestling in regards to training and just being all out uh, tough tough men, just smart tough men. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was always a big fan of of um, Sambo submission wrestling. Back then, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu was not as popular. Uh, and there's a school in Hollywood that I was told was the best school. It was a guy named Gokor Chivichin. Uh One of his uh, teachers was uh, Gene LaBelle. So Gene would come in uh, a couple of times a week and teach the classes. And he always would he would always bring in some interesting item and then base the class on how you use this item uh, in order to uh, hurt maim or kill people if you had to. <laughs> so it'd be a variety of, of items from a belt to a shoe to a, you know, anything. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, at, at the time, uh, he, he did know that I was a pro wrestler. So he always was very kind to, uh, to me. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I don't think I quite knew of his, of his pro wrestling, uh, background then and of course now i do but at the time i don't think i did i think i thought of him much more as the judo judo guy and of course you know i, I think i knew of him from uh doing antonio antonio noki muhammad ali uh, refereeing that fight oh sure yeah i'm gonna bring the mic back to mike over here uh, mike mccurdy i'll bring you back to the conversation this is wrestling memories then and now with our guest tom howard you know i'm glad i'm enjoying listening to you know tom's stories and all that but if you try to piece this together, and I'm just going to kind of give a little recap of this for our listeners. If you piece this together a little bit, one of his stories is he's an American portraying a Russian, representing a, Mex- representing a Mexican promotion, AAA, at the World Wrestling Peace Festival organized by Japanese wrestling legend. Sounds about right. There is a lot <laughs> of multicultural in that little story right there. Oh, it gets, it gets better from there. <laughs> Oh, all right. I think we got a we got a jumping off point here, but um, after your run in Mexico, where was your next stop um, in wrestling? Uh, let's see. My next stop. So as I said, I I, I kind of got burnt out wrestling in Mexico. I came back and I met a guy named Rick Bassman. Uh, and Rick Bassman, if you anyone doesn't know of him, he's one of the guys who uh, did the Power Team USA with uh, Sting and uh, the Ultimate Warrior. That's his background. Uh, met him, and he owned a gym, and uh, was starting wanted to start a wrestling school. Uh, there was me. Let's see, Shabu Guerrero was there as well. He hadn't he had just really started wrestling, and uh, and we all started uh, kind of kind of a makeshift wrestling school. And basically, Rick managed a lot of the MMA fighters, 
And at the time, their contracts were all in, in trouble because of the UFC deal that was looking like it was going to be shut down because of McCain. And so you had Mark Kerr, Mark Coleman, Kevin Randleman, all the Boss uh, Rutten, Kimo Leopoldo, all the big MMA fighters all of a sudden started thinking about becoming pro wrestlers. So basically the school started by us training them. And then from there, we got uh, WWE you know, so he started making deals with, trying to get these guys deals with WWE. WWE uh, came and saw the school and said that they would like to uh, have us uh, basically do a development territory. And that's when uh, Ultimate Pro Wrestling was founded. Now, speaking of Ultimate Pro Wrestling, and, you know, we talk about Rick Bassman, and you just also kind of mentioned that you said UFC looked like it might end at that time due to, due to issues and all that. But now UFC obviously is, you know, one of the biggest organizations. I mean, it, it's huge. And a lot of UFC stars have gone on to be into the professional wrestling world, but ultimate pro wrestling, you know, that's university. You had a DVD set that came out at that point in time. This is still at a time where, you know, wrestling training is still not in the forefront. You still had some of the, you know, wrestling, I mean, remember you had wrestling secrets revealed, you know, so it was still kind of a, you know, kind of a, you was kept hush. You didn't talk about it a lot yet. But what was it like the early days of, you know, Ultimate Pro Wrestling with some of the trainees? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, talking about kayfabe, yeah, it, it, was, it was right on, the, right on the, the situation where it was just ending. Vince had already come forward and admitted that the wrestling was staged, um, or predetermined, we'll say. And so WWE did give us permission to do the training series. Um, so that, just, to, just so you understand, they actually, they actually now own it. Uh, they bought the rights to it. Um, but... Uh, the, the the training at the time, you know, they started sending us people uh, pretty much because being that California is, is a, you know, a mecca for bodybuilders and actors and everything, it was pretty easy for us to, uh, it, it was, we didn't really do a school where we charge people. I think they did have some students that came in and paid, uh, but most of the people were there because they were sent by, uh, by WWE to be trained. Now I mentioned him in the uh, in our intro for you know, but if you listen to you know his DVDs, he tells his story. Obviously, he got a lot of his training with Ultimate Pro Wrestling, and that would be John Cena. He was this is Ultimate Pro Wrestling. Honestly, was where he first started, I believe, and that's where the prototype gimmick you know first started on it. What do you remember about you know working with John Cena when he first started and all that? And did you see something in him that maybe you knew that showed you that? You know, this kid had the chance to be, like, the star that he's become today. Yeah, if, I don't know if you ever saw the series, I'm sorry, the special on Discovery Channel, Inside Pro Wrestling, uh, where we, they, they kind of did a, they covered about five different people. John Cena was one of them. And so in that special, you, you get to see him from day one. And he did, he came in as, uh, he was working at Gold's Gym. I think he was, like, the guy that made smoothies or something. Uh, and he looked like a million bucks. And he was a fan of wrestling, but he didn't move horribly well. You know, he kind of was uh, robotic in the way he moved. And he, because his arms and legs were so big, it made him look shorter. Um, you know, like I used to tease and say he ran like an Oompa Loompa. But uh, uh, so we jokingly started, he came up with the character prototype because I was always saying like he was really good at doing the robotic thing. And he uh, came up with this, this prototype, like half man, half machine. And his promos were incredible. A matter of fact, I didn't take him horribly seriously until I heard him do a promo. And that's where I said, wow. Uh, at the time, uh, let's see, I was on the road 
with WWE. Oh, so anyway, I also signed my development deal with WWE during this time. And so they had me traveling on the road doing dark matches with, uh, you know, most of the time with Kurt Angle, a couple of different people. But uh, so, so I wasn't there to train people as much as I would have liked to have been. You know, I'd, I'd be there a few days, uh, be, be gone for a few days. So, you know, there, it was real patchy, the, the training with all these people back then. Now, who are some of the, you know, along with John Cena, what were some of the other names that, you know, went through Ultimate Pro Wrestling? Because I, I have your DVD set. I also have the yeah. Inside Pro Wrestling training. And at that time, you know, UPW was kind of one of the premier ones. It was a developmental area for WWE, brought a lot of their talent in. But I don't think people really understand kind of the, the history of UPW. And I don't even know if UPW exists now. But, you know, what were some of the other names that came through that people might know? Yeah, uh, so The Miz, of course, uh, as you said, Frank Kazarian, Samoa Joe. I'm trying to think of people in the initial documentary that you would have seen there. Um, oh, jeez. So we had, in the documentary, we had uh, Kazarian, Samoa Joe. Oh, Chris Daniels uh, worked for us as well. He was already pretty well trained, so he came and helped us as a trainer. Um I think you, you named you named quite a few of them in the beginning. There's like 20 different people uh, or more. Uh, I mean, I could go through and name the lesser known people, but those are the main the, the main uh, known people: Victoria, uh, Luther Reigns, uh, Jesus Aguilera, Sakota. Uh, like I said, probably 30, 40 different people that, that made that made it to WWE. As far as Ultimate Pro Wrestling, as I said, I'm not sure. Is it still running at this time? Because you know, I haven't heard much from it. I mean. No, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been long shut down. It, it's interesting because, you know, we never, uh, wrestling was not horribly popular at the time. We, we were able to make it popular in our area because we did the shows in a nightclub setting and we made them into a really fun, cool, like rock star show. So, you know, wrestling in itself wasn't drawing at the time, but, but because of the fact that the connections we had and the people we had on our shows, we were able to draw even though we were drawing. I don't think we still ever made much money. Uh, the, the, the bigger the show, the bigger the venue, the, the less likely you are to make money because of the, the overhead involved. Um, and because of the fact that we were running these shows in order to get video product in order to impress WWE, who's, you know, giving us weekly paychecks at the time you, we, we ran everything to the hilt. So it wasn't ever something that was going to be financially sustainable just like the school wasn't. Um, I, I still don't really understand a lot of wrestling schools r- running and make, making money because it wasn't something I could ever figure out how to do. Definitely more of a hobby. I think these days you might be able to have, you know, some of these promotions that are making money, but for the most part, I find that most of these are, are hobbies <laughs> and money pits. And unfortunately, in some cases, that is kind of the state of the independent scene anymore. I mean, you have a little, you have some profit areas here and all that, but you know, especially here in Texas, there's a huge boom in independent wrestling, and I wonder sometimes just how all these different groups that run on a weekly basis, you know, where where they're making their money and all that. But you know, during your time with UPW, you said you also had a developmental deal with WWE. You got to work on the road with go on the road with them. Got to wrestle with uh, Kurt Angle. This probably would have been the beginning of a. Uh, I'm guessing the beginning of his run with uh, WWF WWE. But what was it like working with WWE? and being on the road, because obviously, you know, the preeminent 
organization and those guys at that time that was when they were on the road a lot well what was it like working with the world wrestling with wwe uh well so interesting I'll, I'll i'll tell you how it got started because that's kind of an interesting story they had something called the funkin dojos with with dory funk and tom pritchard and uh they were interested in uh hiring me uh, i came in on board with a, as a tag team and my partner they weren't interested in my partner he was a little too big at the time like a big power lifter and so they offered me a contract. Um, they brought me out to Stanford, Connecticut to do one of the, the Funkin' Dojos. And I kept hearing that, okay, your, your contract's on the way. Uh, they're dragging their feet on it. And so it's kind of funny. So Rick Bassman uh, made a call over to WCW, and they thought that I was already signed. And so they flew me out and uh, had me do a, a dark match for them. Literally within... 10 minutes of me leaving the arena, I got the phone call from Rick saying that WWE is overnighting your contract because they had heard that I finally went to do WCW. So it was one of those funny things where, oh, okay, now we'll, now we'll take you seriously. So um, anyway, got the offer for the development deal. Um, they let me stay back and teach for quite a bit of time um, and then put me on the road. Uh, the, the travel schedule was brutal. It's It's even more brutal when you're the guy doing dark matches because you first of all, they, they were, I was fortunate enough that my deal did cover travel expenses. I hear a lot of guys don't, I don't know how you'd even be able to do it. But, um, so, but just as far as the flying, the renting cars, the driving from the city, it is a grind. And within the first year, uh, after being on the road, doing this over and over, I, I had this like, this moment of uh, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. <laughs> so it's like, wow, thinking this is what I have to look forward to if I'm lucky enough to have a job for the next 10 years. So it was, it was very, very uh, eye-opening, kind of scary. Um, and like I said, I just wasn't, I wasn't certain that it was something I, I really, I really wanted to do. I'm going to hand the mic over to Glenn. I'm sure he's got a few more questions as we're getting close to the end of our interview today. Yeah, I'm going to veer over a little off of uh, the, the pro wrestling, your chronological story to talk about some of the things that you've been uh, uh, in as far as the entertainment world goes. Uh, first of which, uh, I, I want to know about how you got involved with, in 2008, uh, as a trainer and instructor and also a technical producer for, uh, and I remember it being on CMT, the uh, Hulk Hogan Celebrity Championship Wrestling. I remember seeing some characters on that, man. I, I want to know, uh, how long were you with it? Uh, how did you get involved with it? Just, just your overall assessment of, of, of working uh, with Hulk, uh, Hulk's show, actually. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. What it came down to is because I had the training videos out in, in Hollywood, and, and of course they knew I trained John Cena, supposedly, you know, that's the big thing. If you, if they, if you throw, out, throw around a name, um, in, in Hollywood, if you, you know, if you have the credibility, that really helps. That's how I got the, the deal to train Jack Black as well. So, you know, they, someone at the, at the production level, Bischoff, was able to look at my training videos, and, and they said, okay, this guy's good, we like him. And uh, they brought me in. Uh, they had me, and then I was able to bring in some of my uh, friends and students. One of them was Joey Ryan, of all people, you know who he is, uh -huh. and uh, another guy named Mike Velasquez. So they came in, we all came in. Um, and we were there, uh, from the beginning to the end of the show, we basically, they had Brian Knobs and, uh, Bruce Smart Beefcake were 
the team captains and they acted as though they trained the guys in the ring, but they really didn't train them in the ring much. Um, they had us uh, training them. Uh, of course, it was uh, Dennis Rodman, Butterbean, uh, a lot of really interesting people. I got to know, man, what was it like the, to be around? I mean, you had Screech also on there. There was Todd Bridges, yeah. of all people. I mean, but the yeah. thing was, with Todd Bridges, he seemed like he was uh, really into it. I mean, he was he was, he was was going yeah. all in on it, where you had you had uh, Screech and Danny Bonaducci, uh, you know, manufacturing their usual brand of uh, reality show drama. But what was it like dealing with some of those guys? I mean, you had uh, Nikki Ziering, uh, who wanted to go take a cigarette break. It, I mean, it was a, just an interesting blend. Tell me what, how, how you... Was yeah. was it was it hurting cats at times? Uh, it it was and it wasn't. The guys were all really respectful. I was good okay. friends with Butterbean. I've known him forever. So, uh, it, you know, basically had a good buddy to hang out with in Butterbean. Uh, you had Danny Bonaducci, who <laughs> first time he comes in, he's late. He's late. So uh, because he's got a radio gig, so he comes in, and they told me to get after him on camera about being late. And then he, he was going to be confrontational with me. So, you know, I, I look down and I say, oh, nice of you to show up. And uh, he gets confrontational, gets in my face. And then they say cut. And then he says uh, afterwards, he says, hey, just so you know, I'm not dumb enough to think I could ever, ever face off against you, man. He goes, I'm just going to do some stuff on camera because I'm supposed to be crazy. But just go with it. Go with it, man. And, uh, I'll talk to you later and, and we can straighten it out after, after we're done taping. So he was, he, was act, he was cool and smart enough to know that uh, you could get, you know, more done with uh, honey than uh, vinegar. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Rodman, Rodman, uh, you know, uh, he, he, you know, came in a little, uh, like, not in, not in the condition to, to practice a couple of times. And I had to, I had to gently advise him that uh, he needed to go, go take a nap. Uh, you kind of figured that, especially in training and progressing, it's not something you can, you can mess around with. Uh, let's think of the other guys. Uh, I'm Todd Bridges. I'm Hogan. Oh, Todd, uh, I don't care for Todd Bridges at all. He's just not a good person. Really, uh, really, really, because they had him. They had him up as a guy who was le- trying to learn. But what was what was it like behind the scenes? I I, I like to know behind the cam behind the uh, the camera here. So he wasn't really uh, yeah that, that kind of guy. No, he's just not a good person. He's just he's just not a good human being. I mean, plain and simple. You know, I I can't give you specifics, but I can just say he's not a good human being. Um, now Hulk is tremendous. Uh, Brutus is a great guy. Um, Brian Nobbs is Brian Nobbs. I mean, you can probably figure he's sort of like he is in real life, his character. Uh, the unfortunate part was Hulk's son was going through, Hulk was going through that divorce and his son was going through his sentencing at the time. So it was a very difficult time for Hulk. Uh, and you know, he wasn't there as much as he wanted to be. He had to keep flying back and forth to Florida and so he was very gracious every time he'd come and go and, he'd, you know, be very uh, grateful for us just handling his business for him. And, you know, just, I, I couldn't, I, I'd, I'd go have, you know, uh, anything bad to say about Hulk. Very good guy. And Eric Bischoff found him to be a really good guy. Uh, so he had to tear into one of the, one of the girls in the end, cut a promo on her and her agent. And it was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> now compare that to training uh, Jack Black for for uh, Nacho Libre. So Jack Black was interesting for Nacho Libre. They we I trained him at a Noki Dojo in Santa Monica. Uh, he came in, uh, it was just me uh, and his the stunt coordinator and Jack, and then I brought another guy, and and they wanted him trained from the ground up. 
basically just as though he was, you know, someone coming in from the streets to learn Lucha Libre. He had a judo background, so he actually knew how to do the rolls and the flips and everything immediately. So that makes a huge difference because if someone's not comfortable with the backfall or the three-quarter roll or whatever, it takes a while to get your body used to that. So he was ready to get started right off the bat. He had a great memory. You showed him how to do something. He did it once. He did it perfectly. Uh, and by the time we were done, we, we spent, I don't know, a couple of months training him. Uh, by the time we were done, uh, he, he definitely could go out and carry a basic match. Wow, that's impressive. I'm going to bring back uh, yeah. Mike McCurdy here for the home stretch of the program. Mike, uh, are you ready for a few more questions with our guest today? Well, you know, most definitely. Um, what I'd like to talk about more, you know, a little bit here, we're coming to an end. And folks, it's going to get a little bit noisy because right outside the mobile studio, I have some uh, construction work going on. So I, I apologize for any slamming and banging you're about to hear for a couple minutes. But uh, <clears throat> in fact, here we go. But um, I'd like to talk more, Tom, about kind of what you're doing now because few days ago, you know, prior to this taping, I had a chance to sit and listen in on a seminar that you conducted, about a four-hour seminar you conducted at uh, Dallas Championship Wrestling. You know, it shows you still have, you know, an interest in the business, still have a love for the business. And the person, sorry for the banging, the person, one of the ladies you were working with, uh, Lacey Ryan, she was helping you with bringing on excellent worker, I'm, I'm going to add. If anybody has a chance in the area to see Lacey Ryan in the ring, amazing talent i mean her match that night was just spectacular but as far as wrestling goes and all and just you know other you know business life what are you doing now in uh as far as things go well actually so i travel for a living i'm i'm in my family business uh we do we uh, basically it's footwear imported from israel and so i have to travel uh to israel several times a year and then I travel for a living about uh, three months, and then I'm home for about three months every, each season. So what I do, uh, and my uh, fiance is uh, a wrestler, Lacey Ryan. Uh, so I help her out. Uh, uh, locally, I've been train helping out with training uh, Miranda Gordy over at, at uh, one of the, the local places here. And uh, so we all get together a couple, two, three times a week. Uh, and train to get over there. Uh, also, I do training wherever I can as far as helping people out. Like I said, this was just a, they asked me to do a seminar. Uh, the wrestler, Randy Wayne, who's another good friend of mine, uh, asked if I'd help out, and I said, sure. Uh, I still like to give back to the business as much as possible. Um, I feel like I, you know, a lot of my knowledge is kind of old for the time because wrestling's evolved so much. But the basics of psychology that, you know, exist, it's, it's a lot of the answers that these people are looking for now of slowing things down, of adding the psychology of the past. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a fun to be able to visit it. Uh, and then when I'm, when I'm in different places like Florida, you know, you can go out and train there and help out at some of the local schools there as well. You know, now, Glenn, we're going to add a little bit more to this list. I'm trying to recap this for our listeners as well. Um, now we can add to the American, the Russian, the Mexican uh, wrestling in Japan also as well, which we didn't really have a chance to get to a little bit too much in my next question by the letter. Now we have the shoes is made in Israel or they're Israeli shoes, and you go to Israel to sell these shoes, correct? No, no, the company's, the company's out of Israel, and they, 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 <laughs> they, they sell them here in the okay. States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they're very, very high in the world, world they're, 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 man, very cultural. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's something I've done my whole life. I'm very good at traveling. I'm not good at much else, but very good at traveling. Now, before we wrap up the interview, you know, like I said, we're definitely going to have you on again because I think there's more of your story that we haven't had a chance to uh, touch on a little bit. You know, But I'd like to give you a chance to talk a little bit about wrestling over in Japan because, like Mexico, wrestling in Japan is a huge market and very well respected. Yes. So I, it's kind of interesting. Uh, as I told you, I was at WWE. Uh, my contract was expiring. Uh, I had an opportunity to go do a big pay-per-view in Japan uh, from a guy named Hashimoto, who was one of New Japan's top stars. They wanted to bring me over and have me face him in a singles match. WWE said it was okay. I went over. I had a match with him, and the match was really well-reviewed to the point where they offered me a contract. I did not uh, re-sign with WWE. I signed with Japan. I spent the next 10 years uh, wrestling in Japan. It was in probably... I don't know, four or five video games, half a, dozen, half a dozen action figures, just a lot of fun stuff that you'd only dream of, and I was able to experience it in Japan. That's where I really found my way. Uh, they had me wrestle as a character that was a former Green Beret, like a drill sergeant. And the interesting part was my character uh, basically was so tough that he would no-sell everything. So the Japanese guys would come up and you know chop me and kick me and I would basically no sell it like a machine. So and then I would just kill him. So uh, it was a pretty cool character because you know if I would have had to go over there and wrestle like a normal person, I don't know that I would have gotten over so much. But the character was put over so much by by the Japanese people. I'm sorry, and the wrestlers that uh, it it really got over to the point where, um, like I said, I was able to to make make a living there and and uh, do pretty well. Now you're over there, you said 10 years, you're making a living on it. Japanese audiences, what is it like wrestling in the ring in front of a Japanese audience? Because you, know, you see New Japan, you watch the shows here, and they're quiet. They're not, you don't see the signs. They're not yelling. And when they see something they like or after a, you know, a chain of moves, on, they applaud. So it's a very respectful audience. What's it like working for a, uh, in front of a Japanese audience? Yeah, they, they pay very close attention. And I noticed whenever the guys, the guys who worked WWE style would go, would go to Japan, the fans didn't really care for what they were doing because you've got to make impact. Uh, I always worked strong style. That was my nature. And so I think that's part of why I was respected by the fans, uh, the, just being hard-hitting. And um, as, as, far as, as far as the crowd responses, you get used to it pretty quick. You definitely don't, you don't uh, like you said, they're respectful. And they they kind of know that they're not they're not, they're not trying to be part of the show <laughs> with ch starting chants and different things like that. They're watching it. Uh, they applaud. Now you know if you call for an applause, they'll give you the applause. You know you can conduct them, but they don't try to take over like a lot of fans in America do. Working with WWE, Mexico, Japan, you know, head trainer with Ultimate Pro Wrestling, training for you know, Celebrity Championship Wrestling, training Jack Black for Nacho Libre you definitely have an, a stellar career in professional wrestling, but looking at the industry now and the, you know, all the independents and all the schools, what's kind of your take on the current, current wrestling scene? Well, I, I, I'm fascinated by it because I, I didn't realize that I, you always hear about the business being cyclical, but the fact that it's taken the level that it has where WWE is not, so much popular now as 
Japan, indie, uh, of course, the, 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 the new elite stuff. That to me is really fascinating because it's, it's almost like the fans have, jeez, I, I don't know how to even explain it. I feel like they've sort of turned, sort of turned on the WWE, which is hard to watch for me. I, 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 can, I have a difficult time watching it, to be honest. Um, and I, when I'm coaching, you know, Teresa and different people, I, I tell them, I said, don't watch the current product. I said, watch, watch other stuff from other countries and watch past products because the current product is not good. And if you, go, if you think you're going to go out there and wrestle that way, they're, they're digging themselves a hole. I, that's my personal opinion, of course. Well, definitely you got to have the, the psychology and you need to watch a lot of the, uh, the guys of the past. Cause you know, I watch, like I said, I watch one of your seminars. You definitely teach an old school, you know, style and all that, but you could do have a lot of young kids in there that are in that ring. And, you know, they're seeing guys like, you know, the young bucks and everybody wants to, you know, you know, you want to do 20 super kicks in a match. And unfortunately that's not something I enjoy because, you know, the super kick, whatever, it's supposed to be kind of the end, the finisher, the kind of the punctuation at the end of the sentence. And you got guys that are just, you know, they do 20 of them and then the guy still stands up and then they do another. So it's definitely, you know, you definitely have an old school style about your training, which I enjoy. I do still sure. watch current WWE products on. So but I understand totally what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say this is Tom one. I would like to invite you back as a guest. Cause sure. we just barely touched what you did in Japan and all that. I will say though, in my opinion, you're probably one of the more cultured, maybe multicultural guys we've ever had on the show. Cause as I said in my recap, there's a lot of countries and a lot of things that you've covered just as far as gimmicks and wrestling <laughs> and what you're currently doing now. But I'm going to pass it right, over to Glenn if he's got a follow-up, and we'll wrap up this edition of Wrestling Memories. Come on, Grizz. We had Kenny Bolin on. <laughs> this, this is true. We have, we, have, we have had Kenny Bolin. But Kenny Bolin is not as – I don't think Kenny ever did a Russian in Mexico working for Japan. And yeah, I don't think he ever not, not that we know of. It's been reported, have have we? <laughs> this is true. I just want to thank you uh, so, so much, Tom. It was really fun to uh, get to chat with you and uh, listen to you talk about your career. And I know there's so much more when we get, can get into the Japan talk. And uh, like Mike said, I'm going to echo what he said. You're, you're welcome to come back on. we got to get you on here probably uh, when it's a little less colder up here in the North Country, maybe in the spring months, just to, uh, you know, just to, get, just to get in a good spring mood to have you on to talk some wrestling, my friend. That sounds great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And I'd like to congratulate you both on, on the product. I, 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 just from what I'm hearing so far, it really sounds good. You guys do a really good job. Thank you so much. And well, thank you. Well, for the grizzled veteran Michael McCurdy, I'm Glenn Brockett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now.